Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is invisibly influencing you as we welcome our guest, Jonah Berger, onto the show. Jonah, welcome back to HXP. Great to be here again. Jonah, so, I mean, I think your book, Invisible Influence, your latest book, has hit uh, the New York Times bestseller? It has, yes. Wow, congratulations. That's two in a, two in a row for you? Oh, thank you. I, I couldn't be more excited, and uh, it's great to see so many people interested in the, in the topic in the book. That's amazing. I mean, uh, you might have some lightning in a bottle over there that, <laughs> that maybe we can use that you can that you can teach us about in this conversation. I hope so. Okay, so um, why don't why don't we start with a little bit about how you got from contagious to this to invisible influence? I mean, what what decided you to kind of craft the idea for this book? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, after Contagious came out, I uh, had the opportunity to talk to uh, hundreds of audiences o- over the years from, uh, you know, uh, thousand seat conferences with uh, major associations to small startups and everybody in between. Uh, and it was really exciting to share uh, why things catch on, how word of mouth works. Uh, and I always got some great questions after the talk. And, and some of them really related to Contagious. But some didn't. Uh, so people would sometimes ask things like, oh, this is really great. You know, when I, if I have an idea I want to catch on or something I want to spread, this is perfect. But what if I just want to change one person's behavior? What if I want to just influence my boss or influence my employees? What if I want to motivate people or motivate myself? How can I use influence to, to do that? Uh, and I'd usually try to think about, you know, part of the book that might uh, be relevant, uh, part of Contagious that might be relevant. But often without fail, I realized, you know what, that just really wasn't the right book for them. Uh, there needed to be something else. And I looked around and there really wasn't uh, something out there that, that fit the bill. And, and that's when I put uh, Invisible Influence together. So really in response to a lot of people's comments and, and things they needed and, and wanted to know more about. Interesting. So, I mean, with this book, Invisible Influence, we're talking about the the subtle things that kind of influence the the way that we we see and and the things that affect us and how we make decisions, how we make choices, uh, how we kind of uh, dive into this sense of conformity. I mean, where am I with this? It, it's uh, you're, you're somewhat right, but it's it's even more than that. So uh, you know, from the simple things we buy uh, and do, like what breakfast cereal to consume or what movie to watch this weekend, to the more complicated stuff, like which house to get or whether to take a new job or which uh, firm to hire. We often think that we make those decisions. Our preferences, our likes and dislikes drive uh, what ends up happening. And very simply, we're wrong. Uh, without realizing it, others have a subtle and often surprising impact on what we do. As you noted, sometimes uh, that leads to imitation. Sometimes we do the same thing as others without realizing it. But just as often, it, it leads to the opposite. We actually avoid something and are less likely to do it because others are doing it. So when do others lead us to do the same thing? When do they lead us to do something different? When do others motivate us to work harder? And when 
did they cause us to give up? And and how by understanding, you know, these various effects and how they combine, can we live happier and, and healthier lives? And so that's what Invisible Influence is all about, uh, you know, how that science works and how we can use it to be better off. So so how powerful is this sort of idea that that we are affected by the choices that are, we see our friends making, that we see our other people making? I mean, how 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 much of a draw is there with this? What's so interesting to me in, in doing research for the book is, uh, you know, I pulled together an example here and a study there and things from psychology and marketing and organizational behavior and sociology. And, and after looking through it all, uh, you know, at one point I said, you know, let me see if I can find a domain that's not affected by social influence, that uh, something where we're not affected by our peers. And, and literally I couldn't. It was impossible to find an area of life where we weren't affected by others. You know, 99.9999% of the things we do are shaped by others. And sometimes those others are folks we know, you know, our friends, our colleagues at work, our family members. Other times we may not even realize that influence is occurring. You know, the person that sits next to us on the bus or, uh, you know, the person that's running on the treadmill next to us on the gym can actually have an impact on how we behave. Uh, and so the idea of the book is, is one, you know, how do we see influence, helping us recognize influence in the world around us? And two, by recognizing it, helping us choose uh, how to be influenced, choose whether we want to be influenced or not, and choose it in ways that make us better off. I mean, what was what was the scariest aspect of this book for you and researching it? I mean, I, I know that mirror neurons play a big role in learning, but as far as marketing, advertising, and conformity, what scared you the most about this book? I think what scares me the most uh, is how worried people are about influence, and wrongfully so. Uh, I think uh, people, Americans in particular, are so sure uh, that one, influence is a bad thing, and two, it means imitating others. And so as a result, we say, oh, well, you know, I avoided what they're doing. I'm not influenced. Um, That's completely wrong. Uh, You know, when we avoid what someone else is doing because we don't want to somehow be influenced, we're being influenced just in the opposite direction. And so what I found so striking is people's inability to realize how their behavior is being affected. um, And as a result, kind of the unwillingness to to, to come to terms with it. And so, you know, influence is not a bad thing. I think uh, we tend to think influence is is negative. We tend to treat it almost like a four-letter word. Uh, You know, uh, we think of conformity as a bad thing. But imagine, for example, if you couldn't figure out what restaurant to try or what, uh, I don't know, auto mechanic to use without asking others. Life would be pretty hard, right? It would be much more difficult and much more time-consuming. And so often we rely on others as a helpful shortcut to help us make faster and better decisions. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be influenced. And so really, uh, the goal of the book is to help us understand influence and how we can use it. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, I, I noticed that you didn't color it as a sort of negative thing, which was which was which was a positive thing for me to, to see you kind of just just addressing it in, in a sort of neutral way. Yeah, I mean, there's this notion that somehow being a nonconformist is a good thing. That sort of, you know, oh, the best people are the ones that don't go with the crowd. First of all, you know, often those people are going just with a different crowd. Uh, If you look at, you know, hipsters, for example, or people that are against the mainstream, they often dress the same way and listen to similar music and do similar things. And so we're all being similar to some set of people, whether that's the groups we want to look like or the groups we're actually a part of. And it's not bad. It's just a human nature. So, I mean, when we're when we're talking about social influence and um, how it affects us, it, I mean, ha- what was something that you 
in you through your research with this book, what was something that you found was the biggest factor in in determining our behavior? Well, um, you know, there's no one factor that's bigger than all the others, but we can start talking about a few of them. Uh, you mentioned the idea of, of mirror neurons. Um, you know, there's some exciting research that, that looks at how we might biologically um, be set up to imitate others, um, uh, almost like a chameleon. If you think about how we think of chameleons, we think of them as sort of fitting in their environment, changing their color to fit. We do this all the time. Uh, if we're in a meeting uh, and someone crosses their arms, well, we're more likely to cross our arms. If a person starts speaking in a certain accent, we're more likely to adopt a similar accent. And so without even realizing it, we're subtly fitting into our surrounding uh, environment. But that has some important implications for becoming more influential or being more influential. It turns out we can harness that tool to be more effective. Uh, if you want to shape others' behavior, for example, mimicry or being chameleon is a, a useful way to, to do it. Some, some researchers looked at what makes great negotiators. Most of us don't like negotiating, and myself included. You know, we, it's not particularly fun. It's difficult to do. Uh, you know, we don't trust the negotiating partner. We think we want to get the most out of it. How do we do that without upsetting them? It's, it's quite difficult. So they, they looked at over 100 negotiations, and they looked at what separated the successful folks from the less successful folks. Uh, and what they found is that one simple trick uh, made negotiators five times as likely to be successful, five times as likely to reach a deal uh, when all might seem that it was lost. Uh, and that trick, very simply, was being a chameleon or mimicking or mirroring uh, the behavior of their peers. If you know the person they were talking to tilted their head to the side, they subtly did so as well. Not obviously, but subtly so. Um, and that subtle mimicry led them to be more likely to make a deal. It's not just negotiating them. Same thing shows up in all sorts of contexts. If uh, a waiter or a waitress mimics your order, so you say, you know, I'd like the steak medium rare uh, with a side of mashed potatoes. And they say, okay, you'd like the steak medium rare with a side of mashed potatoes. That waiter or waitress just got a 70% higher tip. Daters whose, whose language more mimics one another are more likely to go on a second date. And so across these various domains, mimicry is a way to engender liking, trust, and facilitate social interactions. It's, you know, if you and I found out we went to the same high school or had the same birthday, we'd feel more in common, like we have a kinship, and we trust each other a little more. And that's exactly what mimicry does. Right, right. So, I mean, did you, were you getting into uh, the aspects of NLP, neuro linguistic programming, and like building rapport, such as that, while you were researching this? You know, uh, I'm most interested, I think we have this belief and, and talk about influence. Uh, we have this belief that if we look into the mind, somehow we have more understanding of something. Uh, but it's very funny. I mean, there's some great research showing if you just include pictures of the brain uh, in research, people feel like they've learned more, even if they haven't. Um, and this is a great example, again, of where, sure, uh, there's some great research from neuroscience that deepens our understanding of the world. Um, but neuroscience isn't the only way uh, to look at things. And, and more often, it's really important to look to the field and see how these things actually play out in our surrounding environments. And so what was great in, in getting a chance to write this book is, you know, I surveyed hundreds of studies that I and my colleagues have done, but also a bunch of research from the micro to the macro that helps us understand influence more effectively. I mean, you're, you're a professor. That's what you do by trade, right? That is, yes. I'm a, my, my day job, I like to say, is I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, what was there was an experiment that you did uh, where you were playing with uh, the, the 
the attractiveness that or the ranking of attractiveness of certain women based on a photo. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this, I, this wasn't actually my study. It was a, a study of a friend of mine. But uh, imagine you're a, a student uh, in a class in college. And at the end of the semester, the professor says, thanks for a great semester. By the way, would you be willing to help me out with a, a little bit of research? Uh, and that research is very simply looking at a couple of pictures of people uh, and rating how much you like them uh, and how attractive they seem. Uh, and this is really easy, not, not difficult at all. Um, you know, people have their preferences. They rated uh, each of the, the people they looked at one way or another. What's interesting is they were actually part uh, of a very subtle uh, experiment that they didn't necessarily realize. Uh, the people that they rated were actually actors that had been attending their class over the course of the semester. And so the professor picked a few actors that looked like students before the class started, and he asked those actors to show up to class different numbers of times. So one actor showed up to class almost all the time, one actor showed up to class almost none of the time, and a couple other actors showed up in between. Uh, and then he gave those photos uh, to the students to rate how attractive they found them. What did he find? Well, what's interesting is I think we all think, just like we've been talking about, that we make our own decisions. Who do we find attractive? Who do we like? Well, it's our own personal preferences. Some people like blondes. Some people like brunettes. Some people like tall, dark, and handsome. Some like you know short, pale, and less handsome. Everybody has their, their preferences. And everybody thinks that there's one right person uh, out there for them, uh, that if they find that one right person, they'll be happy. What's interesting is we tend to meet that one right person in one particular place, or two actually. We tend to meet them at work or at school. Uh, you know, uh, out of all the places we go, that one special someone for us, most people tend to meet them at the office uh, or uh, at school. What's the chance that that person, that one person out there that's right for you, happened to take the same 9 a.m. class or, I don't know, you know, happened to have the same cubicle or be on the same floor of the office? And I think this research speaks to that, right? Why do we end up marrying and liking people that we end up working with or being around? Well, what this professor found in his work was that he found, look, the people that had shown up to class more often, they were seen as more attractive and liked more. Merely showing up to class more often, people thought the person was more attractive, controlling for all everything else. The mere fact that people have seen them more made them seem more familiar uh, and made them like them more. And so more broadly, there's a bunch of research on this topic. It's called mere exposure. The more you see something, the more you like it. But um, exposure generates familiarity. And We've all had this happen with songs. You hear a song on the radio, you hate it. Then you hear it a second or third time and suddenly you find yourself tapping your feet. And the reason is exposure leads to liking. Even without realizing it, the number of times we've seen something changes how much we like it. Wow, that's intriguing. I mean, it it really does kind of make you wonder how much of your life has been your choice or not, doesn't it? It definitely does. And, and, you know, there's no one answer to that question. And there's no way to find out for sure exactly how much of your life uh, is your own. But what I think is so interesting is to uncover these influences. Uh, you know, I was just talking to someone who was saying, oh, you know, I, I bought these chairs and I thought I loved them and I picked them because of my own personal preference. And then I went over to a couple of friends' houses and realized that they have the exact same chairs, but I never would have realized that before reading the book. And and often, uh, you know, it's really influence spotting that we're talking about, right? Part of uh, understanding these ideas is to help people spot influence in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, keep going. No, that, 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 that's exactly it. And so, um, you know, to me, it's uh, by spotting it, we can start to understand it and we can start to harness its power. So, I mean, how would you say that we would spot it then? Well, just like the example I'm just talking about. So, uh, you know, we just talked about how seeing someone more frequently might make you like them more. 
Well, right. uh, if you're if you're out there dating and you find someone attractive, think about, well, do I like them uh, because uh, of them or might I like them because I'd seen them more often? If I'm making hmm. another decision, you know, let's say we're out to dinner um, and someone else uh, chooses the entree, we're thinking well, we tend to pick a different entree. We tend to avoid it to be different. We don't want to pick the same thing. We want to stand out. And it turns out that makes us less happier as a result. Well, okay, now that we know that, we can say, well, look, you know, if I'm going to be less happy by picking a different entree, avoiding something because someone else picked it, maybe I shouldn't switch. You know, I have this tendency to want to switch because I want to pick something different. Let me avoid that tendency because it won't make me happy. And so by understanding that influence, by recognizing in the environment, we can take advantage of its power. It's intriguing. I just, I find it so fascinating. I mean, so a lot of this seems to be angled or surrounds social approval. I mean, am I right in that regard? Um, Some of it is, uh, you know, particularly uh, we have a motivation to fit in. Uh, for example, you know, we may not want to be uh, the, um, the vanguard of everything, but we definitely don't want to be the only one standing out. So we definitely have a motivation to fit in. But interestingly, we also have this competing motivation to be different. Uh, we don't want to be the same as everybody else. We kind of want to be in the middle or what's called optimally distinct or, or similar but different at the same time. And so part of it's about social approval, but it also is part about these competing motives that combine to shape who we are. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, okay. So let's, let's dig into your writing style a bit. I mean, it, it, you've hit two New York times bestseller lists with two different books. What did, I mean, how did you accomplish that? What did you do to get there? Uh, you know, I think it has very little to do with me uh, and a lot to do with the subject matter. Um, uh, you know, uh, in, in writing these books, um, I tried to listen to what students uh, in my classes found interesting, um, what uh, folks in my speaking engagements found interesting, or when I work with companies and organizations, the questions and the issues they had. Um, you know, all I'm doing is really challenge, uh, channeling some of the, the great social science that's out there and putting in a form that, that folks can read and understand. Um, you know, I'm an academic by training, but um, I have this experience all the time where I read an article from a different discipline and I sit there going, God, I don't have any understanding of what they did or, or why it matters. And so academic research has so much power in helping us understand the world and, and uh, learn better and live happier and healthier lives, but we have to see how it works for us. And so in both Contagious uh, and in Invisible Influence, I really tried hard to mix both science and stories. Um, you know, there's some authors out there that uh, aren't scientists that are great writers, uh, but sometimes the challenge is they misinterpret the science. And I think it's really important for the science to be right, particularly if we're going to change our behavior based on what we're learning about. And so I'll never be as great a storyteller uh, as some journalists are. And uh, whenever I'm writing, I'm always looking to journalists to figure out that craft and how I'll be a better, be a better writer. It's not not something I'm naturally good at. Um, but what I do have some insight into is the scientific method and, and some research that's uh, interesting and relevant, particularly around influence. And so it's been great uh, to share this, this research with folks. And, um, you know, also I very much applied it when, when marketing the books. Um, you know, I thought a lot about what did we learn about influence and how can we use it to help these things catch on. Right. Yeah, it's very intelligent. I mean, so so put us through a day in the life of Jonah Berger in write writing mode, in author mode. And <laughs> what is what is kind of your? I mean, you've you've you you have two bestsellers. I mean, how can I not ask you this? So, I mean, what is your process? What is the? 
I mean, give us, you wake up in the morning and you grab a cup, a cup of coffee or, I mean, how, what's your, what's your, what's your muse? How, how do you find that creativity? You know, I, I wish I had a deep secret. Uh, I don't drink coffee. Uh, I have a one, <laughs> I have a wonderful dog. That's an endless source of joy. Um, uh, but for me, what really gets me fired up and excited is, is doing research. I like writing about it also, but doing the research for me is, is, you know, one of the most interesting things. Um, we did a study that I, I talked about in the book about how losing can lead to winning. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'd been a soccer coach actually coaching AYSO youth boys soccer out in California, U12 boys, um, you know, lots of fun coach was sort of um, a glorified, it was more a glorified camp counselor, but I noticed that, uh, we didn't always win. But we were more likely to win, it seemed like, if we were down at halftime. So even though you'd think, well, if you're ahead, you should be more likely to win. You're doing better off. We seemed to do better when we were behind. Whatever speech I made didn't matter if it was just to be behind. So I said, okay, you know, how can we study this? How can we bottle this phenomenon? With a, a great collaborator of mine named Devin Pope, uh, we actually went out there. We, we put together data on tens of thousands of basketball games, and we analyzed them. Not soccer, because scoring is sort of infrequent, but basketball, where scoring is more frequent. And we were able to say, okay, how does being ahead or behind at halftime affect performance? And, and so for me, it was a great opportunity. And, you know, I'm, I'm an okay writer, but I think uh, what I enjoy is that process of seeing puzzles in the world around us, like noticing our, our team might be more like it a win when it's behind, and then getting the opportunity to study that and try to quantify it um, and see if it's really true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really intriguing. I mean, I, I find it, I find, I found the whole book fascinating and, and I mean, it was easy to read and just like contagious. And, and I found that I could apply it to not, not only understanding my social choices and kind of my life choices, but also my business choices and how, I mean, how would you kind of relate this in a marketing and business perspe- perspective? You know, we've, we've talked about a few ways already. Uh, we, we talked about how to increase your influence by being a chameleon. That's one, one great tool. Um, where I just alluded to sort of the motivating effect of peers. Uh, but uh, there's some great research that looks at, okay, can, can peers be a, a powerful motivational tool? In particular, proximal peers or people that are, are near to us. Um, you know, people that are doing just a little bit better than we are, for example, can be a powerful source of motivation. And, and that's exactly what we found in that basketball data. You know, we found that in general, you'd be smarter to bet on the team that's ahead on average, teams that are ahead, they're more likely to win, except just one place. And that is teams that are behind by one. Teams behind by one are actually more likely to win than teams ahead by one. Why? Because they're a little bit behind, they get motivated, they come out uh, in that second half, they're fired up and they do better. Even NBA athletes are paid tens of millions of dollars already. They should be extremely motivated. You wouldn't think they need any extra push, but being behind is a motivating force for them. Okay, great. Need to know that. Well, how can we apply that science? Well, first, you know, rather than trying to motivate people by using money, uh, NBA players are already paid, for example, or by punishment, you know, you got to do this or else I'm going to fire you. We should compare them to people that are just a little bit ahead of them. Uh, proximal peers, for example, rather than uh, having, you know, someone win employee of the month by doing the most sales, why not compare each person as someone who's doing just a little bit better than them? That push, that comparison will make them want to work harder and then make them perform better as a result. Same thing for us. You know, uh, when I go running, for example, I always try to go running with friends of mine that are just a little bit better than me. Not a lot better because I might get demotivated and give up. But a little bit better will cause me to work harder and perform better as a result. And so whether we're trying to motivate employees or motivate ourselves to do better at at home or at work, peers are a great way to do that. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, it fits. I mean, it. I I feel like I I do that all the time. I mean, I'm I'm measuring myself through what I've accomplished through my peers. I'm looking at the people around me and measuring that. So, I mean, that fits. I mean, was there was there any one single thing that kind of struck out to you the the most as the most surprising or the most kind of revelatory that you that you found during the research of this book that you could share with us? I mean, I think we've talked a bunch of a number of already. The, the fact that uh, being behind is actually makes us more likely to win, uh, even though we're, we tend to be worse off when we are. I don't think any of us would have uh, predicted that. Or, or the fact that merely mimicking someone else's behavior um, can can make us more effective and have them like us more. There, there are a whole host of, of different things. You know, there's a whole chapter on identity signaling or communicating identity, where we think about how our choices communicate things about us. And you might say, well, that makes sense. Um, but it has some interesting implications. There's a, a great example where uh, Snooky, uh, the character from uh, a Jersey, the Jersey Shore, uh, got a free handbag in the mail from from Gucci, uh, and we that makes sense. Uh, you know, celebrities often get free handbags with the hope that they'll wear them and they'll show up in the press wearing them, and that'll make Gucci sell more handbags. But it wasn't actually Gucci that sent it to her. It was actually a competitor that sent her a handbag. Why would someone, a competitor, send a celebrity their competing brand's handbag? And, and actually, it wasn't just her. Um, uh, Mike, the situation, Sorrentino, uh, also of, of Jersey Shore fame, had a similar occasion where Abercrombie and Fitch sent him a letter offering to pay him money. Uh, but it wasn't offering to pay him to wear their clothes. It was actually offering to pay him not to wear their clothes. Uh, and so why would a brand pay someone not to wear their clothes? And again, right, that doesn't make sense. But if we look at it through the right lens, it actually does. Because what both of those brands were thinking is, look, people don't just uh, want to be like others. Sometimes they want to avoid what others are doing. And yeah, so if yeah. Mike, the situation's wearing Abercrombie and Fitch or Snooki's carrying Gucci, other people may be less likely to purchase those brands and even get rid of the stuff that they have. And so those brands are saying, look, by associating identities with desired behaviors or undired desired behaviors, we can shift people's behavior in, a, in an amazing and powerful way. Wow, that's so that's so brilliant. I love it. I mean, it it, it just fits, just makes sense. Um, I mean, Jonah, like, I mean, where? Okay, so where are you headed next? I mean, you've you've covered contagious. You're 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 getting into the in, the invisible things that are around us. I mean, what's the what's the next thing that you're working on? You know, uh, Invisible Influence just came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's uh, already been a New York Times bestseller, but um, uh, it's really taking off, uh, and I'm getting the opportunity to share these ideas with with lots of folks. So in the near term, I'm doing a lot of speaking and, and consulting around the ideas in this book, but always working on new academic research, uh, everything from the language we use in word of mouth uh, and how it shapes our behavior to why we don't use products that we keep around the home. We all have things that we like, uh, yet we never seem to use them. And so why don't we use uh, those products or, or things that we have? So a whole bunch of research um, and uh, consulting around these ideas and really trying to understand the why behind human behavior. I thought you were going to say you were going to take a vacation for a little while. Take a break. <laughs> I'm looking forward to doing that too. Well, Jonah, where can where can people find your work, man? Yeah, so the, the best place to find me is uh, just my website. It's Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Uh, there's a, the book is there, but also a bunch of free resources on how you can be more influential, how you can make better group decisions, how you can motivate yourself and others. Uh, and if you have any questions, people can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter uh, at J1Burger. 
Jonah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, This is The Human Experience. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you guys next week.